What up, HyperChange? Welcome to another episode. Uh, today, we've got a really exciting podcast in the works. Uh, we're going to be breaking down Bitcoin. I've got my favorite Bitcoin podcaster on the line, uh, Pomp. Pomp, welcome to the show. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So um, for those who don't know, you have a Bitcoin podcast and a newsletter that you do. You're also very active on Twitter. Um, I get a ton of useful info from you, but I'm curious, like, could you give us a story of who Pomp was um, before you became the sort of full-time Bitcoin person? Yeah. Um, I was in the army for uh, six and a half years, um, did a deployment overseas, built and sold two technology companies, uh, ran a number of product and growth teams uh, at Facebook and uh, Snapchat, and then uh, started investing full-time in uh, late 2015. Um, today, uh, and the co-founder uh, and partner at uh, Worm Creek Digital, uh, we manage, uh, I don't know, 130, 140 million bucks. Uh, that's focused on the blockchain and cryptocurrency industry, and then obviously have the uh, podcast and um, the newsletter that uh, that we crank out pretty much every day. And what was your first like aha moment when you sort of like got hooked on Bitcoin and really became a believer and maybe like started actually purchasing it and building your investment? Yeah, so 2014 was the first time I ever heard about it, um, and uh, I didn't do anything. I didn't even Google it. I was just like, whatever. Um, it's pretty stupid. And then um, in 2016, I believe it was, uh, I had a, um, a kid that I'd met when he was in high school, uh, JP Barrick, uh, sit me down and basically say, hey, look, you got to pay attention to this. Um, here and he was specifically talking about uh, Bitcoin mining and uh, and uh, Ethereum mining, and so we sat down, had a conversation, he explained to me how mining worked, why it was important, kind of the uh, idea of cash flow, uh, but not denominated in this other uh, currency, this digital currency, and so I uh, took some personal capital and uh, went ahead and bought a bunch of. Uh, mining rigs and said, look, if I'm going to learn, I'm going to learn by doing. And so we started mining um, and uh, somehow here we are. Awesome. And I know you're a big Bitcoin bull, uh, like an investor in Bitcoin. And one of the things that I struggle with is how do you, how do you value this? Because we're really looking at something, you know, I come from investing in stocks, the PE ratio, cash flow. Um, what sort of metrics are you looking at? to try and value Bitcoin? Or how do you even think about that whole school of thought of how do we value these network values of crypto assets? Yeah, so I, I don't really worry about it. Um, it. It's a very binary outcome to me, right? It's either going to be worth uh, multiples of where it is today in US dollars, or it's going to be worth zero in US dollars. Um, but to me, uh, it's not so much about like, is it overvalued or undervalued today? You know, I've got opinions about it, but, but that's kind of misses the mark, I think, in terms of the bigger picture. Um, and I don't trade. And, and that's been something that I've been pretty consistent with, you know, from the beginning. It's just, I'm not a trader. I know that I'm not a good trader. Uh, I don't want to trade. I don't want that stress. And so I basically have, um, you know, converted some portion of my net worth into uh, Bitcoin that I believe is a good insurance policy or a, uh, a good hedge. And uh, I'll just wait it out and see what happens. Um, either it ends up being worth a lot or ends up being worth zero, but I don't think it kind of just, you know, hangs out at what is it? 7,500 bucks or whatever uh, forever. And so if you're putting a portion, a significant portion of your net worth in here, you know, and holding it at, let's say, call it 130 billion network value, like how do you even ballpark why that's a good valuation to keep so much of your net worth in? And how do you even think about what would make it too high or too low? 
Yeah, I think that's what I'm saying, right? It's like, I, I don't worry about, is it too high? Is it too low? Like it's such an outsized uh, potential outcome that if you said to me, would, uh, is 10,000, 7,500 or 5,000 uh, different, you know, or, or uh, more beneficial right now? Um, you know, where's the value? What's overvalued, undervalued? I'd say it doesn't matter. Like whether you buy Bitcoin at 5,500 or $10,000, it's either going to zero or it's going to, you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars in US dollar value. And so that asymmetric upside is every dollar that you put in, that you convert to this digital currency, uh, the floor of your investment is one X. You can lose all your money. It could go to zero, right? Uh, but the upside is uh, very asymmetric. It, it's hundreds of percent of appreciation on the upside if it works. And so I, I, don't, I just don't think that you want to get into a game of like, oh, I don't want to buy because that's 7,500, but like if it drops to 7,200, I'll buy it. Like if it's going to zero or it's going to, you know, a hundred plus thousand dollars, whether you bought it at 72 or 7,500 is not going to matter. Totally. And I'm, I'm a long-term investor. I'm in the same camp. Like I've been buying, I bought like 3,000, 10,000, 500, 600, just holding. Uh, but at the same time, like I have these models in my head, like, okay, digital gold to me is like one stage of this. Maybe it doesn't get totally adopted, but that's maybe 5 trillion. So we're looking 20 to 30 X upside. Okay. Maybe 20, 25 trillion if this really starts to become used with some layer two solutions, um, sort of those two, the kind of buckets of, of like bull case scenarios you're thinking about when you're like, this is why, this is the multiples on my money from where we are at today. Yeah, I tend to think the reason why I, I'm kind of so bullish on this and think it's so asymmetric is uh, similar to how Uber was a market expanding technology, right? If most people looked at Uber in the beginning, they would have said, how big is the taxi industry? Oh, what, you know, how, what if you could replace the entire taxi industry? Well, taxi industry is really not that big. Right. But what Uber did was it didn't just attack the taxi industry. It attacked private cars. It even attacked just general car ownership. Right. A lot of people don't even own cars. They just use Uber all the time. So it expanded that market uh, or the addressable market. Uh, Airbnb, same thing, right? It expanded the market. It took market share from hospitals and or um, from uh, hotels and other things. And so I think that Bitcoin is very similar here in that it's not just can it replace gold? Can it replace the dollar? Can it replace this? It's actually what's all the money in the world and can it actually be bigger than that? And the reason is right now, fiat currencies incentivize you to spend your money. Right. If you sit and you just hold cash, uh, that cash will lose value over time. And so what you are uh, systematically forced to do is either have your money devalued or to put it into consumption. Right. So buy goods and services or invest it into uh, inflation hedge assets, things like real estate, stocks, whatever. And so uh, what I think Bitcoin can do is basically say to people, look, we can take market share back from uh, all of those other asset classes, right? So uh, Murad Mahabdev came on uh, the podcast uh, very early on and said, look, you know, his thought process here was that uh, Bitcoin could be a $150 trillion asset. And when you think about that, that sounds asinine. I mean, it literally sounds crazy, right? That would be uh, pretty much, you know, what would that be? Uh, 800X from here. Right. I mean, it's just nuts. Um, but when he explained it, he said, well, if all of a sudden you could just save uh, your wealth in your currency, so you're not incentivized to have to go invest it, you can simply just save. Then what happens is you start to steal market share from real estate, from art, from other assets asset classes 
back into the core uh, currency. And we had that for a really long time. Um, but, but obviously, when we broke off the gold standard and started to get to this fiat world, uh, that kind of went away. Um, and so I think that's part of the value here uh, and why I'm so bullish on it uh, potentially increasing so much. I love that podcast episode and I actually made a whole video about it because I was so pumped. And didn't that actually get deleted from um, Apple? Pod? Could you tell, fill us in on that? Because that's also what got me so interested. I was like, whoa, they're banning this episode right after it like went shot up in the ranks. Yeah. So yeah, so the episode came out. Um, it exploded. People were you know very excited about it. Uh, I think a lot of Bitcoiners kind of felt like it was um, one of these things where you could send it to somebody and they could listen to an hour, hour and a half uh, and just get Bitcoin, right? They could understand what it was, why it was important, what the potential was, all of that. Um, and about uh, maybe 36 hours after we released it, all of a sudden I started to get messages. People being like, I can't find it. And I was like, well, I can see it on mine. And what happened was uh, if you had already downloaded it in iTunes, then you could still see it. But anybody who hadn't done that yet couldn't see it. And it wasn't in the rankings or any of that. And so I, I just thought, hey, it's a glitch, whatever. Uh, two days go by, three days go by. Finally, on the fourth day, kind of through the weekend, um, I finally was like, all right, I, I don't know what happened, but uh, I figured I got to say something. And so I tweeted um, saying that uh, it had been taken down. And um, about 48 hours later, it went back up. Uh, and so during that 48 hour period, people were freaking out, you know, is there censorship? Is there all this kind of stuff? Um, I was pretty clear, like, I, I didn't know, but I just knew that, hey, this thing was really popular and now it's gone. Um, and so when it came back, uh, what we found was Apple went and did a pretty big purge um, across the board. So it was like me, uh, Tim Ferriss, Joe Rogan, like a bunch of people had episodes taken down all at the same time. And what they were doing was uh, they were purging something called keyword stuffing. So uh, when we started the podcast, all we did was we just looked at, well, how does, you know, all of these other folks who have really popular podcasts, how do they structure it? How do they write their descriptions? How do they write their titles? All this stuff. And what many of them had done was they had written things like, uh, you know, Joe Rogan dash podcaster, UFC commentator, mixed martial artist, right? Or something like that. And so Apple had rules against uh, stuffing keywords in the title. It's really meant to be so I don't start a podcast and then put like, you know, the pop podcast dash Joe Rogan dash, you know, whatever. So when people are searching for him, he sees mine. Um, but they, they kind of became more, um, you know, serious about that crackdown. And so everyone who had used the same structure, they, they had uh, affected all of us. And, and so once we understood that, we just changed it and everything was fine. But, uh, but it definitely didn't hurt the downloads because when it came back, uh, it took off even more because uh, everyone was kind of like, why'd they take it down? <laughs> Yeah, highly recommend it, even if you don't agree with it, just to hear the theory. And for me, that really helped it click of like, um, and I think it's so crazy, like I've heard you interview with Kevin O'Leary and like he thinks Bitcoin's ridiculous. Like it's almost, I've obviously like I went to NYU and I, it was like a joke to talk about Bitcoin five years ago. But um, when I think about like humans are desperate for a technology to store value over time. And the fact that we only have paper currency and like gold and real estate, and now we have like something born on the internet that's built out of code that just seems so digitally native. And if you believe that software is eating the world, like how could you not even think there's a chance that this gets a sliver of that human storing value over time pie? Um, and I know you're in the institutional world. So I'm curious about like for uh, people like us, it seems so clear that this deserves like a 1% piece of your portfolio or this new sort of rework of portfolio theory where crypto assets and Bitcoin deserve a place. So I'm wondering when you have conversations with these sort of more 
you know, legacy institutional asset kind of people? How are those have those changed in recent years as Bitcoin has sort of matured? Yeah, look, there's a lot of Bitcoiners working at institutions, uh, but, you know, and it's always funny to kind of uncover them as, uh, as I talk to the institutional senior, I say, wait a minute, you're, you believe more than I do, maybe. Uh, but but uh, again, they have, you know, kind of a process they need to go through, uh, a lot of risk management, you know, in, in that world, it's not about how much money can you make, it's about how uh, good are you at not losing money in many cases. Uh, there's a lot of covering your ass and things like that. Um, and so I, I think that uh, over time, we'll see more and more uh, people kind of uh, cross the chasm, if you will, and, and start to allocate to, uh, to Bitcoin. Um, obviously, we manage uh, capital on behalf of two public pensions uh, in, in Fairfax County, Virginia, um, who, uh, you know, they're quite courageous and, and forward looking in that they've uh, now allocated uh, in both cases, they're sitting between half a percent and 1% of their total assets uh, are in Bitcoin blockchain cryptocurrency uh, through our funds. And so I think we'll see more and more people do that. But it's just an education game. Um, and, and them understanding, you know, not only what is this thing, but also why should I have exposure to it? What's the benefits to me? Um, and as I always joke, uh, they're all paying attention now, right? In 2017, they weren't even paying attention, but at least they're paying attention now. When this thing, uh, if it happens, if it ends up ripping up in price, uh, all of a sudden, I think that they're going to end up buying in at much higher prices, um, you know, kind of FOMOing. But, uh, but at least they're paying attention. They're, they're starting to get educated. Uh, there's a lot of smart people that work at those institutions. And so hopefully we can, uh, we can get more of them across the board. And so one of the biggest uh, like low-hanging fruits, it seems, for Bitcoin adoption or crypto to go mainstream is one of these huge tech companies to really put their foot forward and adopt it in some way. And I've been really following what Jack Dorsey's doing super closely. He buys Bitcoin. He's investing in Lightning Labs. He's got Square Payments, the Cash App, launching Bitcoin. Um, I really feel like there's this sort of, they're going to merge the, the seller and, and cash app ecosystems. And there's so much opportunity. Square makes most of its money in payments. If they can just come up with a new payment technology and some sort of layer two Bitcoin solution to connect the cash app and, and Square ecosystems. And to me, like if, as I own Bitcoin, I'm like, this is a huge catalyst, the most exciting fintech banking company in the world with one of the leading like visionary CEOs loves this technology and wants to implement it in his company that tens of millions of people are using every day. So how do you think about this piece of the thesis? Have you looked much into what's going on there? We need 10 more Jack Dorsey's, right? I mean, Jack's doing a fantastic job. Uh, he's in a very unique position that not only does he have uh, Twitter, but he's got Square. And I say it's a unique position because uh, one is obviously implementing the technology from a payment standpoint, right? So I can use Square and, and buy Bitcoin, send Bitcoin, stuff like that. Uh, I think they'll continue to iterate on that. Um, he, he, he's really taken a uh, kind of philosophical stance uh, and said, this is important and we're going to put resources towards this. So you see that with Square Crypto and things like that. Um, but also, I, I don't want to underscore the work that he's done at Twitter, him and the rest of the team at Twitter. Simple things like putting the hashtag Bitcoin that then shows a Bitcoin logo. Uh, you know, it seems pretty stupid and, and uh, small, uh, but it goes a long way in terms of the branding of, uh, of the asset and, and kind of the uh, recognition that it has uh, and really just occupying mental space, right? There's more people who see that orange B now uh, simply because they implemented that on a site that's got, you know, hundreds of millions of users. And so I think that they're really taking a, um, a nuanced yet uh, holistic approach uh, across both companies um, to seeing this happen. And it's all driven by Jack's vision uh, and belief that uh, Bitcoin could become the uh, currency of the internet, right? Kind of the first internet-based currency. 
uh, which would, uh, I think, be uh, be pretty important. And so the reason why I say we need 10 more of them is we need a bunch of other people to step up to the plate uh, and start to uh, use their significant resources, whether the public or private companies, to drive adoption, to drive education, to drive uh, usage. Um, and, and we're slowly seeing that happen. Um, but, but I think that uh, we always wish that it would happen faster. And so, uh, you know, Jack, kudos to him. I mean, just absolutely amazing to do this uh, while operating two public companies. Uh, but we need, you know, many, many more people to follow in his footsteps and, and hopefully we'll get them. And have you looked much into Lightning Labs and just the Lightning Network in general and this whole layer two idea of Bitcoin and how that's progressing? Yeah, so um, you know we are uh, very familiar with uh, with Lightning. Uh, we've made a number of investments uh, on people who are building on Lightning, around Lightning, you know, wallets, all all kinds of payment stuff, um, and, and so generally uh, pretty bullish. Uh, I think people have to remember that this stuff's not going to get built overnight, um, and, and it takes time for developers to build products. And so uh, the, the early data points that we're seeing are uh, very encouraging, uh, but obviously we need something, right? Some kind of layer two technology in order to kind of take the next leap forward. Uh, I think Lightning is uh, kind of the best option right now, uh, but you also have things like Liquid and, and others that are, uh, that are out there uh, and making significant progress as well. And so for us, uh, we are less religious about like, this has to be the solution. Uh, and we are much more in the camp of, uh, we know there needs to be a, a solution. Uh, there may even be more than one solution. Um, and we'd like to see as many of those solutions get built and scaled as possible, because ultimately the more choice that consumers have, uh, we think the better. Yeah. And that one thing I've had to kind of accept is like, even if we're not buying Bitcoin or cups of coffee with Bitcoin, like it, the thesis could still be working because there's so much opportunity at the inflation hedge level. And I'm curious about all this uh, sort of new monetary policy that we've seen with COVID, uh, you know, printing a lot of money, you know, every American's getting 1200 bucks. How do you think these sort of like, maybe I want to say more short term thinking for monetary policy or more willingness to print money is sort of what us Bitcoiners have been saying all along is the bull case of Bitcoin. And that's personally why I've been like adding to my position because I see the fundamental thesis really playing out at a high level. Yeah, so I think it's important to call out uh, when there's a lot of money printed. Yes, there could be inflation. Uh, but also there can be a lot of money printed and not get inflation, right? We, you know, if you look at where we are right now, we're in such a deflationary environment that basically all the printing they're doing is having no effect on inflation, right? I mean, it's barely even stabilizing markets um, in, in many cases across asset classes. And so, you know, I, I think that people have to get comfortable with this idea that Bitcoin can increase in value because of the inflation or the devaluation of a fiat currency. But Bitcoin could also increase in value while the dollar strengthens as well, right? So the kind of the opposite, if we stay in a deflationary environment, Bitcoin could still actually increase in value. And so I, I think that that's an environment that a lot of people uh, previously weren't, um, you know, kind of very bullish on, didn't think that that was possible. Uh, but I think we're starting to see uh, this very wide ranging deflationary environment right now, the printing that they're going to do uh, and have done so far, I don't think is going to lead to some level of hyperinflation or, or something crazy. Uh, if they were to go and print, you know, 
20 trillion dollars sure we, we may get there um, but but I think that they've been fairly prudent in the printing uh, it is a lot right but but it's also the deflationary environment is pretty overwhelming so it can take absorb a lot of this um, but but that doesn't change my thesis at all uh, in terms of, uh, of Bitcoin and the future outlook there and so I think people just got to start thinking about you know what is Bitcoin's uh, price action look like in US dollar terms uh, in a deflationary environment where we don't get inflation I still tend to think that it's going to go up in value, but we'll see. And can you explain that a little bit? Because I'm, I'm watching some of your interviews about inflation. Um, it seems like this is sort of scratching the head of a lot of economists of like, why is all this money printing not leading to inflation? Is it because technology is a deflationary force on prices and we have that sort of both of these forces working at once or what's going on here? Yeah. So, um, you know, and, and to be clear, like these aren't my ideas. I, I have the great fortune of, um, of talking to a lot of really, really smart people and, and uh, they frankly are educating me. Right. And, and so uh, there's a gentleman, Brent Johnson, who runs a company called uh, Santiago Capital uh, in San Francisco. And he's got a theory uh, that he's labeled the uh, dollar milkshake theory. The whole idea of the dollar milkshake theory is central banks around the world are injecting tons of liquidity into the global financial system. Uh, so think of that as kind of they're making a milkshake, right? They're literally just injecting trillions of dollars uh, into that system, but only one asset gets the straw, right? One asset gets to suck all the value of that liquidity into uh, that asset, and, and he believes that's the dollar. And so what we're seeing right now is all that liquidity is just flowing to dollars, right? It's a liquidity trap or a liquidity crisis. Everyone wants dollars. Uh, other assets are selling off and, and not really stabilizing. And so you've got this really strong dollar compared to most assets. Well, over time, what happens is uh, you eventually are going to have to weaken the dollar in order to stabilize and then increase the value of other assets, right? That's the only way that, that, that it occurs. Uh, Brent's theory is that's not gonna happen for a while because of this dollar milkshake theory where uh, no matter how much liquidity they inject into the market, it's gonna keep strengthening the dollar because all of those flows are flowing to the dollar. And the reason why that's important is it's all based on a, a relative analysis, right? If uh, let's say that I have the US dollar over uh, the Australian dollar, for example. And if we both print a bunch of money, but it's on a relative basis, the same amount, there's really no change, right? Because literally, relatively, we're doing the same thing. So yes, there's a kind of everything in the world moves up at once, but on a relative basis, it's all the same. And, and so you don't see a lot of the issues that I think people are really worried about. Um, and, and so that's part of that theory. I highly suggest people go check out, you know, what Brent's um, talked about. He's been talking about it for a while now, uh, but, but it's starting to play out. And, and again, in that deflationary environment, Bitcoin can absolutely still increase in value. And I think it will. Uh, but, but I think that's just a nuance to the argument of, you know, Bitcoin's going to increase because of hyperinflation. I don't think that's necessarily uh, the only way that it increases in value. Yeah. And I, I'm almost seeing like when I look at these, some of these SaaS companies or like tech stocks, like Netflix, Amazon, like all these SaaS companies, even with the market crashing are like 15 times sales with 40% growth rates, like unheard of. And I'm like, to me, it almost feels like the people are so desperate to find a place to put capital, even though inflation hasn't happened, that trust of like, how easy is it for them to print money? How quickly will they do it? It seems like that is sort of fizzling. And then that alone is causing this flight to like, safer assets, even like equities versus cash. Yeah, look, it, it's always a, uh, in a liquidity crisis, correlations move to one, 
right? And what that basically means is everyone wants uh, dollars, right? And, and as they move for dollars, they look around in their portfolio and they say, what do I have that's got a liquid market that I can sell? And Bitcoin, gold, treasury, stock, and anything you got, you're going to sell it because you want dollars. Um, and so because everyone is doing that, you get that movement in correlation towards one. Um, but it leads to a strong dollar in a deflationary environment. We saw it in 2008, right? I always remind people, gold went down 29% in the summer of 2008, right? Now, it then, after doing that, went up almost 200% and ended up hitting an all-time high, right, by 2011. But it went down 29% during that liquidity crisis. And so I think that people just got to remember that uh, this isn't a black and white world. The, uh, the economy, especially during times of uh, uncertainty or instability, has a lot of moving parts. And it's not you know, possible to make a true uh, analysis by just looking at one or two parts of the economy. You have to look at it holistically. Uh, and because there's so many moving parts, it's really, really hard to get right. Totally. And so what I'm curious, what gets you like excited about Bitcoin? Like you obviously own a ton of it. Like, is it like what, when do you wake up and you're like, oh, remittances are charging 10, 10% fees. Like Bitcoin's going to crush that. Or like what, what sort of, what do you see that gets you excited about Bitcoin or like, you know, the, the, the vision about it? Much easier than, uh, than all of that. I think all of that's like the complex analysis. It's only two things that, uh, that I think is uh, important. One, it's accessibility. Anyone in the world with an internet connection can get it and use it. I think that's incredibly powerful. Uh, it, it makes it more pervasive than any other currency or banking product in the planet, right? Um, you just need an internet connection. You don't need a bank account. You don't need anything else. I think that's kind of one. Uh, and then the second is uh, the deflationary structure uh, with a programmatic disinflationary monetary schedule. Right. And what I basically mean by that is the idea that uh, it's fully transparent. You can see everything that's going on uh, and the monetary policy is programmatic. Right. I always joke and say uh, nobody here can tell us what's going to happen at the next rate decision. Like right now, everyone's debating, are we going to go to negative rates or are we going to stay at zero? Nobody knows. Literally nobody. Right. Uh, I can tell you every single monetary policy decision with Bitcoin for the next hundred years. Right. And there's a lot of people who will say, oh, but that's not healthy. Like you need to be able to respond to economic uh, issues and, and uh, manipulate the rates and all this kind of stuff. I disagree. Right. I, I don't actually don't think that that's the case at all. I think what you've got to have is you've got to allow free markets to reign. Um, and Bitcoin is the ultimate free market. Right. And both from a, a, a trading standpoint, there's no circuit breakers. There's no hours of operations. It's 24 seven, 365, regardless of the volatility. Um, but also a free market in terms of um, that there is no manipulation uh, or anyone that's going to step in and change that programmatic monetary uh, policy. And I think that's a really strong thing. So you, when you combine accessibility to, um, you know, kind of the structure of Bitcoin, it's a no brainer to me. And when people realize that programmatic monetary policy really does have a place in the financial system, whether how small you think it is, would we ever see central banks start to buy Bitcoin? And this like, I've seen on Reddit, the like FOMO apocalypse theory, where one central bank decides to start buying it and then others do. Um, and I'm curious, like, do you, do you think about that? And, you know, because Bitcoin's such a big idea at a high level of replacing currency of all these central banks, really. I think it'll happen at some point. Um, I don't think we're close to it now. It wouldn't surprise me if some small central bank somewhere have started to acquire it quietly or something like that. Um, but but I don't think that we're yet at the point where, you know, the United States or, or somebody like that's going to come out and say, hey, we're buying Bitcoin to put in our uh, 
uh, our treasury or anything like that. Um, but, but, you know, it'll happen at some point, uh, mainly just because they're going to really have no choice. Uh, but that could be 20, 30 years from now. Right. And, and again, I always remind people that like, this is such a long game. Um, it, it really is such a, um, you know, multi-decade type play that you just have to have a lot of patience. And if you can have patience, um, it's boring, but to have the patience, I think those are the people who are going to be the big winners. Definitely. And what I'm a big uh, Tesla investor and like sustainability advocate myself. So I'm curious how you, one thing that I've always struggled with is like the energy side of Bitcoin. That's something everyone always kills me for in the comments. Um, but of course I'm like, we need to use energy to run society. So we can't just have a great technology with no energy. Um, and storing value is an extremely piece of our economy that we should dedicate energy towards. But I'm curious, how do you, you know, when people talk about this whole energy side of Bitcoin, how much it consumes, what's your, what's your uh, view on that? Yeah, I mean, look, what, I think the reports are like 70, 80% is renewable energy. Uh, obviously, the greatest uh, input, um, you know, from a cost perspective uh, is your cost of power on the mining side. And so people are literally financially incentivized to go find cheapest power. The cheapest power is renewable energy. Uh, so we see everything from people using, uh, you know, excess hydropower uh, to wind farms to uh, geothermal stuff. Um, all, you know, flare gas, all, all kinds of crazy stuff that people are uh, are trying to do to get lowest cost power. Um, and, and so I tend to not worry so much about uh, the energy consumption, like the, the US dollar energy consumption is way higher than, uh, than anything that Bitcoin has going on. Um, and so are other fiat currencies around the world. Uh, I hear people, yeah, I, I understand that there's uh, environmental uh, issues that need to uh, at least have an eye kept on them and addressed if they become uh, you know, pretty bad. But I, I think that people underestimate how much of this is renewable energy. Definitely. Well, um, thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview, Pomp. Super interesting. I'm curious if you could tell like my subscribers and, and for me, I'm just curious, like what are your favorite resources to like maybe track Bitcoin news, Bitcoin fundamentals, or like besides your podcast, any Bitcoin podcast we should be following? Yeah. Um, so there's tons and tons of great content uh, that's out there. I would say that my number one source for sure is Twitter. Um, I follow a whole bunch of people um, there and uh, I enjoy not only getting kind of the uh, traditional news, seeing what they're saying, but also then kind of the Bitcoin community uh, and then all the memes and GIFs and all that kind of stuff, I think is, uh, is a lot of fun as well. Um, and then in terms of uh, content wise, I would say the, the two podcasts that I really spend the most time listening to uh, is Peter McCormick's uh, What Bitcoin Did uh, and Marty Bent's Tales from the Crypt. Uh, I, I uh, really enjoy both of those podcasts um, and, and uh, also read Marty's uh, newsletter every day. Um, then there's a bunch of other people who, uh, who create great work. Uh, you know, Masari, for example, has a, um, a great newsletter that they send out. Uh, Delphi Digital, where I'm on the board of directors, uh, they do fantastic research, kind of these more deeper dive, traditional research type uh, things that um, that is just invaluable, I think, when people are looking at the space. Um, and, and then on top of that, I spend a lot of time talking to individual people. Like the people I actually learn the most from are people who are not in the industry. Right. I want to talk to traditional finance people. Why do they agree or not agree on something? Right. Why do they not believe that this has any value? What are the detractions to this? What is the mainstream consumer saying? Right. Do they even know about Bitcoin? All of those data points are super valuable to me as I kind of um, you know, triangulate what's going on in the world. Um, but those are some of the, the sources that I would say I spend the most time uh, really consuming. Actually, I forgot one last question. I love to see if everybody, anybody has like a moonshot. 
like, is there a, like, some, like Jeff Bezos has been secretly acquiring Bitcoin. Will Amazon implement it? Like, will Apple create a hardware crypto wallet built into the iPhone? Like, do you have any crazy moonshots um, in, the, in the Bitcoin universe? Um, I think that there are multiple countries around the world that have already taken national resources and built very large mining facilities uh, and are mining Bitcoin. That's, that's, that's a, um, I think that's already happened. Uh, I don't think that's something that's going to happen. Um, and if you think about it for two reasons, one, um, nobody would know, right. In terms of that, they're acquiring Bitcoin. Uh, it's kind of a, a KYC free way to do it. Um, and then two is, uh, it's part of a much larger, like infrastructure type plan, um, where you could see a government saying, look, we've got excess power. Or we've got, you know, some sort of power generation, uh, issue or, or problem. Uh, and this is a great way to monetize power. Um, and, and so it's less about like, we're bullish on Bitcoin and more, uh, we're trying to solve a problem, uh, on our infrastructure side. And so well, that, that's probably the big moonshot for me. Wow. I'm so glad I asked that. That was an epic answer. And I feel like kind of goes into the whole like central banks acquiring it, like national security implications um, side of what Bitcoin is. So awesome. Anyway, thanks again, Pomp. Really, really appreciate it. I'll put all the links to your stuff below uh, so people can check that out. And yeah, stay safe out there. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me.